0: Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on The Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. And welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa,
1: and I'm Allison.
0: And welcome back to our usual grind here at the Coffeehouse, bringing you history and analysis. Thank you to everyone who bore with us through the last three episodes of our musical experiments.
1: Hopefully, it wasn't too overbearing that you had to bear.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what better way to go back into music history than with the poster child of classical music, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart himself.
1: Of course we've looked at his overarching biography before, but today we are zooming into a few select years. 1785 to 1786, which are commonly described as a turning point in Mozart's advancement. And we'll be sampling one of his more inconsequential works from this period, the Rondo in D Major, K485.
0: Now the 80s as a whole, the 1780s that is, were a big time for Mozart. In the early 80s, he had really established himself into the good graces of the Viennese aristocrats and common music lovers alike. He had produced a series of very successful piano concertos that were popular and well-loved. And he had also become good friends with the prolific Haydn, and please tune into our Haydn series for more on this, and he took much inspiration and forward thinking away from this relationship. In this middle part of the 1780s, Musical tastes in Vienna were beginning to change. Mozart was now in much higher demand for his vocal pieces, especially opera. And it is from this time period that we get some of his most well-known masterworks. The Marriage of Figaro, The Magic Flute, and Don Giovanni.
1: But he still wanted to write other types of works as well. At one point in 1785, he was actually approached by the publisher Franz Anton Hofmeister and commissioned for a series of three piano quartets. It seems Hofmeister wanted to capitalize on the success of Mozart's previous piano hits and expected that the genius composer would turn in basically repeats of his previous popular works. And he was sorely disappointed that Mozart's solo piano style had actually begun to shift and kind of take on a new life of its own. He said, quote, Write more popularly, or else I can neither print nor pay for anything of yours. And Mozart declined to change his music in any way, saying that he would not stoop to popularity for popularity's sake, and he would rather go hungry.
0: How's that for artistic integrity?
1: (laughs) Hashtag starving artist. And well, as it was, Hofmeister still actually paid for the first of the quartets that Mozart produced, the G minor quartet. But he was right. It didn't really sell as well as Mozart's previous works had.
0: Nonetheless, during this time, Mozart did not go hungry. In fact, it was probably the most lavish period of his life. He and his wife rented an expensive apartment in Vienna, purchased keyboards and fancy furniture, and even had a few servants. Spoilers, though. This living large wouldn't last. Although not the topic of this episode, Mozart did die in relative poverty. In addition to his larger-scale works, Mozart, of course, also wrote small pieces that were popular with the home performer. For example, the little rondo we're looking at today.
1: This rondo in D was composed in 1786, and though it is technically a rondo-form piece, it also has been likened to both a sonata-form piece as well as an opera overture. And just another example of Mozart not settling for the boring old ways of things. So the rondo theme itself sounds like this.
0: Now, surprisingly, this is actually a theme taken from the quartet in G that Hoffmeister had hated. Mozart, being the character that he was, might have done this on purpose. A slap in the face for being snubbed. It is a very brief little theme heard in that piece's own rondo. Not the rondo theme itself, but rather a little theme Mozart briefly visited.
1: Now our theme here is really quite simple and sweet. The first measure is all a tonic D major chord. In the bass we have alternating D and F sharp chords going up to A in eighth notes, and in the treble we have a downward arpeggio in a melodic rhythm with A, F sharp, D, with little small grace note passing tones. Our 2nd and 3rd measures are actually the same, but just with slightly different rhythms in the treble. So both have the bass 8th notes that move now up to E and G, alternating back and forth to A, and then in the treble there's a downward G, E, C-sharp arpeggio, so it's essentially laying out all of the notes of the V7 dominant chord. But what is propelling the music along here is that the rhythm changes in that arpeggio. In our third measure, we have half note, quarter, quarter, with the little grace notes, just like our first measure. And so to the listener, this actually sounds like a sequence.
0: And to resolve this 5-7, the fourth measure, or the end of the phrase, is back to tonic 1 with D, F sharp, A, just like the first. But again, the rhythm is different. Now it's a dotted quarter, eighth, quarter signaling to us that it's the end of the idea. Moving on now to the second part of the basic theme. Our fifth measure gives us a little different interest. We are now on the subdominant four, with G, B, D outlines in the bass eighths. But this is only for the first two beats, and we actually jump back to tonic with D, F sharp, A for beats three and four, so the pace of our progression is moving faster now.
1: And then the 6th measure is an exact repeat of the 5th, but when we get to the 7th measure, it brings us again a little different interest with some chromatic moving eighths in the treble. In the bass we have chords on beat 2 and 4, and they are the 5th and the tonic respectively, and then we have rests on beats 1 and 3. So even though we have gotten back to our tonic here, since it's on that very weak beat 4, and there are many passing chromatic notes in the treble, It doesn't really sound like a resolution.
0: And finally, in our last measure of this introduction to the theme, we end on five with scalar sixteenth notes in the treble to wrap us back around to our next phrase, which picks up at the beginning of the melody again.
1: So this is a rondo, right? So what sort of other themes does Mozart actually get up to in here?
0: Well, we get a little bridge section here before going into what sounds like our main theme in B minor. And then that quickly goes into what sounds like another bit of bridge before getting us back to the main rondo. So this could really be considered an intermission to the rondo. Or just Mozart developing our theme as though it were a sonata? Maybe, but
1: it's still a little early yet to call this actually the development section if we're thinking about it in sonata form. I think this is still just the exposition. And of note as well, when the rondo actually comes back We've modulated into the key of A major, which is our dominant five. You wouldn't really know just by listening, unless you were a really good listener, but of course, by looking at the music, we can see it.
0: Mozart also experiments a few times with having the melody in the bass instead of the treble. finally we round out this section with the cadence measure of the main theme repeated a few times over and we remain in A major this whole section then repeats back to the beginning where we're still in D major and there's no jarring effect when it just flips turns back into our home key
1: into what could be the development section. Mozart first wants to take us on a journey to distant keys. He starts reiterating A major that we had just ended on. Think of this as our new tonic key for a while and then moves measure by measure in ever quieter echoes through first our five of four which is an a major seven chord and then to f sharp major seven which really doesn't fit nicely into any key For example, if we're still thinking of A as our tonic for now, that would make this chord a 6-7 chord, which doesn't really exist. Or if we assume that we have actually moved back into D major, which is also coincidentally the subdominant or 4th of A, it would still be a 3-7 of 4, which also doesn't really exist. So is this really just a whole measure of passing tones? Since it's so blatantly outside the traditional modulation keys, even though it is a major 7 chord, it almost just sounds diminished in the context. Editing Allison, jumping in here. On second thought, this F-sharp chord that we have going on is just the fifth of B minor that we're about to come up to, so it does all make sense.
0: I think something like this shows Mozart's mastery of theory. Because it still sounds good in context, even though in analysis, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, we then move to B minor, the relative minor of D major, which does finally make sense. And then we return to something familiar from the second part of our initial theme, G major, which is the four, or subdominant, of tonic D.
1: Sorry for all the theory!
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is one of our famous theory-heavy episodes. (laughs) But within this section, we get more development-type sounds with sequences and moving around to distantly related keys.
1: And then, as our rondo theme comes back again, we are now back in our home key of D major. So, if we're thinking about this in sonata form instead of rondo, this would technically be the start of our recapitulation section. Now, as we mentioned before, recapitulation doesn't always have to mean that it's the end of experimentation. So, after an exact reiteration of the theme from the beginning, Mozart quickly shows us a D minor rendition, which is simple enough, just lower the third. So in this case, instead of our melody going downward with a F sharp D, we get a F natural D.
0: Up until now, everything has been duples. Well, the scalar pattern getting into the next rendition is now in triplets. And it resolves into F major, the relative major of D minor that we've just come out of, and the minor 3 of D major. Then we understand those previous triplets were just a warning of what was to come. We now go full out with triplets everywhere for several measures.
1: Perhaps that is actually Mozart's way of amping up the inferred tempo to the listener, by writing slightly quicker notes, as our next section actually has the melody again in the bass, but the alternating eighth notes in the treble now are sixteenth notes that are laying out the chord tones. And also for those keeping track, we are now back in tonic D major.
0: As we round out this iteration, Mozart actually puts the melody into inversion. Previously, we had the melody with a downward arpeggio, but now we experience an upward arpeggio. This speeds up as well with several upward arpeggios per bar, before resolving into sixteenth note scales and an anticipatory trill ending on D in the treble. But this is not D major, sorry, instead it's in B flat major. Please note, this is not actually a related key.
1: Well, not really, but it makes logical sense. So D is the third of B flat, and we are technically resolving to a chord tone. Now switching from a key with two sharps to a key with two flats does immediately change the character of the music perhaps giving it a warmer feeling than what we had previously experienced with our other modulations. We have our whole little melody laid out in this new key. So how do we get back? Well, it's with the help of chromatics.
0: You know, chromatics will never let you down, and they don't care what sharps or flats you have.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Chromatics love you. <laughs> At the end of our B flat major phrase, we have this little dotted eighth sixteenth motif that starts as an outline of B flat major, D down to B flat, up to F natural, and Mozart changes the lower note over the next few beats from B flat to A to G sharp, R A flat, while keeping the D and the F natural constant. downbeat then resolves back up to A, which is the dominant of D major. We get a D major scale going up again and that anticipatory trill. And this time we actually land on D major.
0: It's about time. (laughs) Now as we get into the end, there's a bit of what could be a coda section in that the bass line changes from its repetitive up and down to actually have the lowest notes walking along. It's almost like a (laughs) hoedown. And over this, Mozart has our very first measure in D major repeated a few times, occasionally moving into the dominant for a brief moment to keep momentum, but ultimately, we finish in D major.
1: So there you have it. We've brushed off our theory skills and hopefully didn't lead you too far astray.
0: Even if you didn't pick up all that we were laying down with the theory speak, we hope you could be at least guided through this rondo and see how Mozart interpreted the term rondo. Because in this case, it wasn't a rondo with many intermittent themes, but rather a rondo with intermittent keys, which I think is just a very cool Mozart thing to do.
1: (laughs) very mozart indeed
0: and a very cool listener thing to do would be to leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts if you like what you see and share us with a like-minded friend family member or colleague for the coffee house classical music podcast i'm asa
1: and i'm allison thank you so much for listening the Rondo in D Major K-485 was performed by Harold Vedder. The Piano Quartet in G Minor K-478 was performed by the Nash Ensemble. You can find The Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.